0: Thir- thirteen I think he actually does it at a couple places, but I've got thirteen I don't know if it's the one. <coughs> I think it's 13. I because I if I'm if I'm understanding you correctly Fred and Francis, it's that passage where he seems to be saying he doesn't want them to learn. Right. Um, it's not just that he's because he's he, he says to the here let's let's wait until everybody's on. I'll I'll go because I really think it's a. I mean, it the
1: other time. I don't want to tie it. No time. no
0: no 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 no. I because it, I mean, there's no way they don't relate, particularly since um, Christ speak so much about the Father here. Did you turn them on, Doc? We're already on. Okay, you guys be careful because we're already on line. <laughs> Suzanne snuck up on me. Tracy, it's good to see you. You're doing okay? Yeah. Yeah, good. I got your note. I was um, I know you don't want to hear this from me, but I worry about you. Um, <laughs> that, that big heart of yours dealing with the public that when you love art, and I think you have questions whether people love art for the right reasons or not. I mean, I know it's a big concern for you, but are you surviving the cold? How's it been in your part of the country?
2: Not too bad. Not too bad. The university campus closed for about two days. So I worked from home, which I love, you know, which is good.
0: (laughs) The university being which one?
2: It's called Midwestern State University.
0: Midwestern State, uh, you're not housed there. Are you? You're at a museum. Are you on campus?
2: Uh huh. The museum's part of campus.
0: Oh, I didn't know that. Mm-hmm. So historically,
2: you, it was community. But historically, it was a community uh, museum, but it became part of the university about 15 years ago.
0: Yeah. So you've got students and faculty in and out, as well as general public.
2: Yeah. How nice. Yeah, I have a lot of students. Um, I give them um, a very special tour of art and artwork. It's called the Art of Seeing Art, and it was developed by the Toledo Museum of Art. And it's six steps that makes your brain slow down from seeing to interpreting. So it, it slows you down. Six steps to go from seeing to interpreting. Yeah.
0: It'd be cool. Yeah. Wow. I think I've told you that you you know Suzanne and I are. We'd like to plan a surprise visit sometime and just, I, I know that's, the, I mean, we've got to let you know, but sometime we'd like to go there just to, you know, have an evening with you and, and it would be wonderful to be on campus to see what you do.
2: Well, in the fall we're opening a show that the the English professor that I work with is uh, coordinating and it works from our collection from the 20s and 30s and then books that he's been buying that have illustrations by famous artists in them. So it'll be pretty interesting. Huh? That'd be a good time to come see that. <laughs>
0: um, I, w- I want to get you when you don't have anybody else around or support. Um, you, you only have the one somebody from English, not from other fields?
2: No, I work with other people, yeah. yeah. He just is very involved yeah. on that kind of content level, level of content
0: yeah. development. yeah. yeah.
2: Very invested in the collection.
0: Yeah! Wow! Good, good. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Hi, Pat. Hi, Mark. Hi. Um, good to see you guys. Let's start. We're late. We're start. Let's start. Um, any, any prayer requests for tonight? <clears throat>
3: Yeah, I have one for my neighbor, Luis, who had uh, knee replacement surgery several weeks ago.
0: And it's he's... Luis?
3: Yep, Luis. And he's still struggling.
0: But the surgery his... went okay, did it?
3: Yep. Yeah, yep. Good. He's just in the rehab phase and the yeah. pain phase.
0: Yeah. Well, good. I mean, that's all. that's all good. I know... Lots of people are apprehensive, but I, I mean knee surgeries typically go pretty well. Um, the real question is how hard people work in rehab.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: Lots of people just go through the motions, and you know, still end up with a lot of stiffness. And but if you if you work really hard at rehab, you'll get your le- he'll get his leg back. Um,
3: yeah, he said right now it's excruciating yeah. <laughs> when he goes to rehab.
0: Yeah, yeah. Um. Okay, let's start. Name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. What's the reading? Um, no. Thank you, Lord, for the gift of yourself, um, the gift of our life from you, and the gift of yourself this morning at Mass for your words to us, um, for the service of the visiting priest, um and for our work together. Um I'm particularly grateful that this winter has um been nothing like last year that, um that we've really been free of rain because if we'd had rain it would have been another difficult day and lots of homeless fleeing to shelters last year and in a desperate way and um it's just a milder freeze and I'm grateful for um, particularly all the help that people offer for each other and for our relative safety um, I ask a blessing on all the people that are experiencing covid we know lots of people have come down with it people who have been vaccinated and um, and most of them seem to be doing really well so there's a lot to be grateful for in this you know this winter season um, with all of its colds and the things that people don't like. Uh, um, we, we enjoy blessings all around us so we're grateful for those. I'm um, going to ask a special grace for Luis, um, Karen's friend, um, help his uh, rehab to go well. It's, um, inspire him, it's breathe into him some toughness if he will work hard at his rehab he will he'll get his legs back Um, and I ask a blessing on the work that we're doing together and particularly with John Um, I think I may be speaking for myself here but I'm genuinely amazed um, at a depth of a quality that I've not seen it's been a long time since I've read John and the Gospels but because we get used to them we can count them in the count on them in mass so speaking for myself I've not read them kept up in them Um, but reading John um, deepens in lots of ways your presence in our life and I'm grateful for that so let a blessing be upon the work that we're doing um, let it not stay in our heads, please. Help all of us to be strengthened with a spirit of courage and humility and humility both to bring you to our world. Um, help us to do that gladly, um, trusting in you. Um, let a blessing be upon all that we do this night. Help us to carry out it, it out into our world. We offer... This prayer in your name, Christ our Lord, Amen. <coughs> um, Fred, I've got two concerns. Um, one of them goes back to Matthew, which I'm, I'm and I'm pick- uh, glad to pick up again. And I want to—I'm going to put Suzanne on the spot. She didn't know I was going to do this, but. Um, um, she can tell me to get out of the bedroom tonight I I'm not sure what she'll do but, um, um, but I, I want, I'm want i going to ask her to speak to something that we talked about after our class last night just to get it out on the table because I think it's, it's worth taking a minute with when we got on Fred said that he and Francis had been talking about that passage in Matthew where Matthew explains what he's doing with the parables because you know that in Matthew, so much of what we get from Christ is parables. And he has this strange statement. I thought we'd spend a little bit of time on it, but maybe we didn't give it the time that it deserves, because it's it's an important one. It's one Suzanne and I have talked about. So before we turn to John, and I just want to take a minute to outline John when we get there, but not now, I'd like to take up these two things first. Before we do that, let's go back. In chapter 13 in Matthew, you know that Christ has been um, teaching largely through parables. And it's interesting to think about the difference between Matthew and John with respect to this because you know in John, um, Christ speaks directly to us constantly. I only remember one passage in the Matthew, We're through 1 and 14 tonight. We've been doing seven chapters a week. So 8 through 14 tonight. He he does almost nothing in parables. The only one that I remember right now at the top of my head is the parable about the Good Shepherd. I am the Good Shepherd. He does this. He likens himself to a shepherd. In all the other passages, um, I I may be missing something in here, but in all the others, he speaks directly to us, explaining what he's doing, who he is. Every one of his speeches, every, every one of his offerings when he's speaking to the disciples are, are direct, clear explanations of who he is. He's not speaking in parables, he's explaining himself, describing himself. And we have to talk about that pretty seriously. In Matthew, that's not so. In Matthew, he's constantly describing things, most particularly heaven, in terms of parables. So he's telling stories. And the disciples don't always get it, (laughs) which is funny to see. I mean, you know, they're ordinary people like you and me. I'm sure that if if we were around Christ, we would be shaking our heads too. Maybe even arguing with him and saying, wait, hold on. You know, I don't know. But He's been speaking in parables, and in 13, the disciples are troubled. This is 13.10. Why do you speak to them in parables? And he answered them, To you it's been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. So, for whatever reason that's contained in that explanation, to you it's been given, to them not, um, he's been speaking in parables, they don't get it, lots of people don't get it, um, but he says for him who's, who has more will be given and he will have abundance but from him who is not even what he has will be taken away. This is why I speak to them in parables because seeing they do not see and hearing they do not hear nor do they understand. With them indeed is fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah, which says, Shall indeed hear but never understand, you shall indeed see but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and their ears are heavy of hearing, and their eyes they have closed, lest they should perceive with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their hearts, and, t- and turn for me to heal them. But blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. Truly I say to you, many prophets and righteous men longed to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. So in the prophecy, Isaiah, the way he states it makes it seem as if God is withholding withholding something, as if he didn't want certain people to be saved. Lest they should perceive with their eyes and hear with their ears. And I think for some of us, the question is why doesn't he do that? Does he a mean god is he why is he withholding it from some people Fred let me i want to be clear i just is is this the passage you're talking about or is there another
1: no that that's it because what we were in reference to john we we've got a book here that kind of compares the synaptic all the synaptic gospels and John yeah, and it was just it was just interesting that uh uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke all have parables—quite a few parables—in their gospels, but uh, John has absolutely none. Yeah. Zero. Yep. It was just, you know, in our discussion with John, it was just kind of a, a, a curiosity as to, as to why. And yeah, I looked at the reading in Matthew, and I remember that always disturbed me. So.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
1: But I don't, I don't I didn't
0: mean to tie a class. No 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 you're not. I mean you're not. Please don't don't please don't. Um you know, every got it's like we're s standing on the rim of a chasm, you know, different points. Every one of them points to the same thing. They're all going to the same thing, so we're we're not gonna go, go back to Matthew, we're gonna get to John. But there's no way talking about one of it one of something in one of them that isn't gonna take us to the others, um, they have the same concern, the same source. Any responses to that passage that I just read? Why does Christ say that? <clears throat> um, he's been he's been teaching through parables, and he, and and you know we went through it. He even goes so far to explain some of them. He says, when I talked about this, this is what I meant so the disciples wouldn't have any questions, right? He, he makes it clear to them the meaning, if it's not obvious. I mean, I think obvious, It's the meaning is pretty clear, but sometimes it's not, and he actually explains it. But here, he's explaining um, a pedagogy. He's making clear why he does something the way he does. It's like a method. He's not letting... He's saying things so that some people don't get it. Now that seems mean on the surface. Oh, Fred, I was gonna say something, I'm glad you, you got we only got the top of your heads before and now we've got all of you, so okay. Okay. <laughs> anyway, any thoughts on what what Christ means here? Why he says what he says, why he's doing what he does with people? With parables? Because it's very different from what he does in John. Ab- absolutely radically different. Are you going back to it? The... No, I was
4: looking at the chapter in myth.
5: Mark, you have a thought? Are you asking why he used parables in general? No, I'm asking I mean
0: he 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 says pretty Clearly, I mean, there there may be some confusion about what he means, but he says, "To you it's been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it's not been given. For to him who has, who has, will more be given, and he will have abundance. But from him who has not, even what he has will be taken away." That sounds like a more like a dictator or a schoolmaster than Christ. So I think, but
5: if I remember that passage, he's talking about the Pharisees. Right before that, I could be I could be wrong, but I thought he was talking about the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and to and if I'm correct and if I remember correctly, which I may be wrong, um, but it was basically him saying, "I've given them the same show as I gave you, and you agreed with me. Their eyes are still shut; they refuse to believe. Therefore." Ah, uh, they can go kick rocks. No. They had the same chance as everybody else. And,
0: hey, have a nice day. Mark, sometimes your charity has a way of undoing me. <laughs> just, it, 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 you just overflow with charity sometimes, and it just deepens my affections for God. <laughs> no, he wasn't speaking to the parable. Actually, just before that, he's giving the, the parable of the seeds falling on ground, and just before that, he was giving others. So, but But... In, but it's still—we're still left with this question: Why? Why does he do it this way?
5: You Don't ask that question.
0: I just did. <laughs> I just did. God, oh save me! You should have had
5: a good Catholic mother.
0: No. Mark, be still. You've had no. You've had your. Be still, God. Karen, do you have any thoughts? Mm-hmm. Tracy, I gotta get you back. We've missed you. I've missed you.
6: Okay, Bob, I have something.
0: Oh, Pat, sorry, go I, ahead. I, go right. ahead.
6: It says here
0: No, this has got to be from you. I we don't
6: Well no, <laughs> but this helps me to understand. Okay, as well. go ahead. Go ahead. Parables were a common form of teaching in Judaism. Before a certain point in his ministry, Jesus had employed many graphic analogies using common things that would be familiar to everyone, like salt, bread, sheep, etc. And their meaning was fairly clear in the context of his teaching. Parables required more explanation, and at one point in his ministry, Jesus began to teach using parables exclusively. So that makes me think that, okay, the audience that he was teaching for before in Judaism, understood what he was saying, but this other audience does not.
0: Yeah, yeah, but... And
6: that may be not what you want to
2: hear.
0: Yeah, the question is, specifically here, I want to focus it, I mean, all that you're saying, I think, is um, historically, biographically true, that that was a common practice, I mean, um, you get stories everywhere in the Bible, and People teach their stories. That's always been true. The question here is why he says what he does about his method. For he says, For those who have, more will be given. For those who don't, things will be taken away. This is why I speak to them in parables. Because seeing, they do not see. And hearing, they do not hear. Nor do they understand. And then he uses that quote from Isaiah where Isaiah says, um, you shall hear but never understand, you shall, so Isaiah is speaking to his people at that time, and he's saying, as a prophet, I've said all these things to you, you don't see, I've spoken these things to you, you do not hear, for this people's heart has grown dull, and their ears are heavy of hearing, and their eyes they have closed lest they should perceive with their eyes and hear with their hearts and understand with their, or sorry, hear with their ears, and understand with their heart and turn for me to him. It sounds like God is spiteful. He doesn't want to do this because if he does, they may turn to him. Now that does not sound like a loving God. I think Fred's question, if I'm understanding it, is a good one. He, he and Francis were troubling. him. Doc and I have talked about this passage. Why does God do this? I think Mark is touching on something when he says, or I, I'm going to put it differently. If he's if he's asking whether it's the Pharisees, you know, um, why does why does Christ do this? And why why in turning to Isaiah, he's making it clear that the problem that he's facing today with the people surrounding him, is the similar or the same as the problem that Isaiah faced centuries before. So the question I'm asking is, why, why does Christ withhold? If I can just be blunt, why doesn't he give explanations to clear up things for some people, instead of withholding things?
3: Well, maybe they can't understand it at this point. And he needs to wait until they're more open to hearing it.
0: Except, yes, except that he's saying, Isaiah, lest their eyes are heavy. that, it, um because you might you might begin to understand. And the whole point here is apparently is he does not want them to understand. That sounds well, like spiteful like, God. It's
3: all in God's time, right?
0: Sorry? It's
3: all in God's time. Maybe it's not time.
0: Diane, you want to, can you put...
4: I, um, I mean, I've troubled over that passage for a long time. Um, I think that, that part of what Karen is saying is true, that, um, God chooses his time. Um, I think that parables, um may not be easy to understand, but they leave people thinking, turning it over and saying what is, what is he talking about, what does this mean, and they think about it, whereas if he had said something that was more like doctrine, you know, like I am the son of God, they don't believe him, and so they stop thinking, they just reject it. so maybe speaking in parables is a way of planting a seed, getting around a little bit the walls that they put up um, when he says something. Um, I I don't know. I, I still don't fully understand it, and I feel like what I'm doing is putting a positive spin on it.
0: Yeah, um, so. yeah. Could you all hear Suzanne? Could, yeah. Yes. Um, one, one thought ahead, I had ahead, friend. was
1: you know, sometimes when somebody tells you something exactly um, you, you tend to forget I mean it, it's like okay you have it for a minute and then you get off on something else and you forget but if you have to puzzle through something to to ultimately understand it, it at least for me it tends to stick with me then uh much more readily and i just i wonder if part of the explanation is if if you were interested enough in what he had to say you would spend the time thinking about what it was he said and puzzle it out whereas if he had just told you straight up uh whatever the concept contained in the parable was and and you weren't really interested then you would just move on then it would never it would never reside in you for any extended period of time i mean that's the one thing i i notice about the parables is you have to spend a little time working your way through it to really figure out in in many cases what the actual message is Mm -hmm. but then it tends to stick with you longer
5: yeah i don't know
0: yeah
5: Bob, bob there's a couple of things number one we're not going to understand it anyway. It's beyond our human ability to understand the glory of God. Okay? That's a fact. So that that's part of it. The other part of it is, I think, parables are a great way of teaching. Psychologically, they just are. And you've got to give... Jesus' credit for doing what he can with what he had, because under believing that it's not, incomprehensible to us, what did he? What was he able to get to us? Okay, through the use of number one human language that doesn't really translate to English that well, mm-hmm. by the way, but the fact that two thousand years later there's enough people who are talking about this—that's pretty damn good job. And you know, I mean, look, I mean, ancient peoples generally, as far as intelligence wise, most of them weren't that bright. So he's teaching them the best way he can. They're grasping it the best way they can. And there's going to be things that we simply will not be able to comprehend and understand in God's time, not in ours. And it's just some of the mysteries of the church, and that's okay.
0: Um, let me offer. My thought here, I, I'm a little bit puzzled about your opening statement in your last remark, Mark, because you said they're incomprehensible. You can't understand them, which, That's which, true. Well, well, it's not true, Mark. It's not. Well, well, let me disagree with you and and use okay, the. Okay, bar- explain the trend
5: Mike, Mark, ahead, Mark,
0: Mark, Mark, would you, would you, yes, quiet your. I, I I hope I don't have to put a mic on you here. Hold on for a minute. I'm, just, I'm trying to respond courteously to what you said. Um, it makes no sense to say they're incomprehensible. They don't, because Christ himself makes them comprehensible. He even explains them. Um, a parable doesn't have any meaning unless it teaches something. So it's getting something across to people and making it understandable, or he wouldn't do it. He himself even goes on to explain the parable of the seeds immediately after this passage. He says, this is what it means, this is what this part meant, this is what this part meant, so he he's actually explaining. They are, they are intelligible. You can understand them. Um, does it answer everybody? Always no, but they are intelligible and they are understandable, And and if you put together what Fred and Suzanne were saying, you know, that they ask you to think about them, on the assumption that you thinking about them you, your understanding will grow in depth um, that makes sense but I want I'm gonna let me offer a thought of my own and then I want to go to John because I, I do not want to shortcut what we're doing tonight um, and I'm, I've got to get to Suzanne because I want to put her on the spot here um, you guys are being much nicer than I I am <laughs> um, and I'm wondering what your response to this will be Fred I think I, I think the reason he's doing this, the reason he says what he says, it seems like he's being spiteful. I don't want them to learn. It's almost as if he's saying I don't want them to get better. I think it's along the lines of what Mark said earlier. Um, I, I would just take what he said a little bit farther. Um, I think what he's got in his mind and what um, Isaiah had in his mind is that very often, when you when you teach people the truth of something they will use it the wrong way. Both Isaiah and Christ knew about the um, religious order of the time and the tendency of those people. We've We've been experiencing it chapter after chapter all the way through Matthew and all the way through John. The religious leaders of the time took the truths that were passed on to them by God and virtually inverted them. They made them evil. Christ even says that So, the danger he's talking about, I think, is that he's keeping it secret because I think, this is my reading of it, Fred. I mean, it is um, not only, I mean, you you and and I really like what Suzanne said that she feels like she's putting a positive spin on something else. I think that something else is a little bit darker. It's that um, he knows the danger of teaching truths to people with religious convictions because very often those people can take those truths and do horrible things with them. The greatest struggles that Christ has had, the, s- the source of the difficulties that he'll face at his end, come from the religious people. They're the ones who see what he's doing as evil, they call him evil, they call him a blasphemer, they think he's possessed by a demon. That's on the basis of religious truths they've inherited through their traditions. So there's a grave danger, I think, in teaching the truth to some people. We know it inside of our church. We know that there are people in the church who take the the deepest truths of the church and and use them for wicked purposes. Um, we don't we don't think of classes within the Catholic Church as being Pharisaic, but I think it's a fair word to describe people in the church today. I mean, I, I've used that phrase. I've used that phrase before from Paul when he says the veil has fallen over Christianity, or I mean the Jews, the veil has fallen over Christianity. I mean there's there's lots of people who take the truths of the church and use them really badly for their own purposes. So I I, I think it's just, from as I understand it, it's Christ being as wise as the serpent, gentle as the dove. He knows that there are dangers to what he's teaching. The Pharisees have made that really clear. Um, that's, I think that's one of the reasons he spends so much time teaching, like he does in the, in the passage following, the one I just read in 13. Because he takes time to actually explain the parable so the disciples understand it. He wants those men to grasp these things. They're going to go on and teach. They've got to be able to understand them. There's not this divide between reason and faith that there is in our modern world. Christ wouldn't be doing. He's he's the source of reason. He's using reason everywhere he can to make the truths of faith more available, more part of what he does with everybody, his disciples and the people. Let me leave that, and um, everybody can ponder it on their own. Um, I'm going to put Doc on the spot, and i um, It's too sudden, but I should have warned her. Yes, you <laughs> She's making faces at me. <laughs> Last week when we were on our walk, I can't can't remember what, but it had to, we were reading a passage in, in, um, I think, Fred, what was your, Um. you said you had a difficulty with Christ not being fully aware because it's as if you brought this assumption of an absolute knowledge that he was God, so of course he should have been aware. He should have been a... Asp- uh, we were talking about the Canaanite woman. And it's as if a little bit of exasperation. Or with his mother when he says, it's not my time yet. Or when he gets when, when he makes clear to the disciples, he wants them only to go to the house of Judah, the chosen people. Then he comes to the Canaanite woman, and we saw it in a couple of other instances, where he has to suddenly take care of somebody in a way that he hadn't expected. So the woman uses the metaphor of um, even the dogs of the children get fed, you know, the crumbs from the table, and it's and it, it's then that Christ heals her. And um, it to me it makes absolute sense of that passage we struggled with when we read um, Flannery O'Connor, The Violent Beard Away, because the, the reading of most of the church fathers on that same passage is, um... Christ can't resist love. There's no way he could have turned away from that woman, just as there's no way he could have turned away from other Samaritans or other people, and why he uses the Samaritan parables. It's his way of showing that the chosen people have gone astray, that people who love will enter the kingdom when the chosen people won't. Some of them will be last or won't at all. So there's this... Um, I, th- I thought you expressed it well. You, you were sort of full of wonder at the, at the fact that he's God because you, the way you expressed it, if I remember correctly, is you thought he's got absolute knowledge, he knows he's God, and yet Doc, what can, if I can for a second, can you recall your response to that problem the way Fred posed it last week about Christ being human and divine?
4: can't go back and get it the same way, but my thinking, and it was a question to you, um, was that Christ was fully human and fully God. So fully God, He knows everything. Fully human, He doesn't know everything, He has to come to it. And part of my sort of wondering about it was realizing that he went back to be with the father again and he brought something... I don't want Mark to jump on. He brought something (laughs) that...
0: (laughs) Mark jump on you just...
4: (laughs) He brought something to the father that the father did not have. I mean, the Father knew, knows everything instantaneously, um, but he has never experienced coming to knowledge in response to something. That's, that's new. Christ takes it back to him. Can't give new an too.
0: example, can you, Doc? Because we talked of, of Christ's um, coming to something, well, even though he was gone.
4: Well, I mean, the examples that you talked about, the, um, the woman who came to him and said, help me please, and he said, no, I can't do that. That's not my, I'm sent, you know, to deal with the Jews. Um, and she makes an argument that um, is full of love for her daughter and faith that Christ can do it. Um, and persistence, um, you know, like was it in the was it Noah who is Abraham who bargains with God? Don't mm-hmm. you know? Um, so I I think that that what Christ did was the human part of him. Um, he responded to something that was so good. In the woman, um, that it made him curve, it made him change
0: slightly. And
4: there are other, yeah, there are
0: other examples. I, the ones that I'm thinking of myself are, are. Remember when he's in the garden and says, "If if this cuff can pass," that's an if. That's a conditional clause. He 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 knows in his head where he's going. There's not a question. He he's made it clear to the disciples. He keeps talking about what's going to happen to help forewarn them. And he even says, I'm telling you this now so that later, when I'm dead, you will have known. You'll see. And he also says, um, forgive them or why do you on the cross? Why have you
4: abandoned
0: me? Why have you abandoned me? You know, the the what I wanna what I the the reason I want to do this is because I thought your question was so good last week and, and I think Even going back to this question that you're raising tonight, Fred, about what in the world does he mean? Because it doesn't seem clear. You can either say um, it has no meaning, people don't understand it, or you could say it does have meaning. But the question is, why does he do it? I'm suggesting he does it because he knows how capable people are of taking really good things and making them bad. We see that over and over. The Pharisees are religious people. They're the most religious people of the day. And they can almost not do anything except see bad. They're always negative. They're always finding fault. They even go so far as to call God a blasphemer. They say he's possessed with a demon. They will find fault everywhere in him. So Christ knows the depths of evil. I mean, if anybody does, he does. He knows the demons, he knows evil, and he knows the danger that people face. The, thing that, the reason I wanted to go back to this is because it's sort of amazing to, because people can get in abstractions and just lose it in their heads. If he's fully God and fully man, we've got paradoxes that won't we'll resolve easily to black-white answers, which are the kind of answers lots of people want to give. If he's fully human, if he is fully human, then what he does with a Canaanite woman will be understandable. If we take that away, we're in one of, the, one of the heresies of the church. I'll come to them in a minute. To any degree to which we don't allow Christ to be fully human, whatever that means for us, we're actually entering into a heresy. If there's any way in which we don't allow him full Godhead, we're doing the same thing. In several of the episodes, we see something fully human in him. doesn't want to do it with the Canaanite woman. He's surprised at other times. He says to the uh, disciples, why? Why? why do I have to put up with you guys? And he says at the end, why? why have you abandoned me? I mean, he's giving his will to the Father. I mean, this is the crux of John. There's nothing, there's nothing he does that isn't in response to the Father, in absolute obedience. But we're watching the human side of him. I, I thought Suzanne's way of describing it, sort of growing into something. Is he the same man at 30 at thirty years old as he was when he was 12 teaching in the temple? Has he learned nothing? And if he was God and only God, why did he face the temptations? If we take his humanity away or undermine it or undervalue it, we're going to take away the greater part of everything he did. The temptations have no meaning unless there was something human in him. Something in him he had to deal with and overcome. So one of the great paradoxes of our church, and it and it's something branches fall off on in either way, is that he was fully human, fully divine. And if if there's any way in which we undermine on either side of that, we risk a heresy. Let me let me give you a couple of them. The Sibelian heresy to deal with this problem said that Christ was the Father in another mode. Docetism, the heresy that said um, that what we saw with Christ as a human was only an illusion, he wasn't real. Arian, so you put the Sibelian Arian heresies on two sides. One says it's all the Father, there's no God. Um, Arian says he's all human. What the church says is no. I mean, that's that's why the church fathers fought against the people on both sides of them, saying no, he's fully both, because if, if they did anything to diminish either side of that, they would take away from the extraordinary thing that Christ did. Okay, let me... Unless there's pressing things here, if there is, we'll take a minute, but I want to get to John pretty directly, so... Any... Any, any comments or questions? or What Christ did was extraordinary. We can't take away from either side and somehow we have to fully put those together when putting them together in our, in our minds leaves us with what seems to be a contradiction. What the church would call it would be a paradox. That's what Chesterton would call it. To take these two things that don't seem to fit and make them one. That's how extraordinary what Christ did is was Okay, let's 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 go to John. Let's go to John. No comments? Say? Did that help, Fred? I don't know, um, Fred. I don't know if Suzanne was asking if that helped you. I don't. I don't know that it. <laughs> I think he's being kind right now. He put a thumbs up. Let's go to John. Um, I. You've got the notes. I'm sorry I got them to to you so late tonight. It was a busy day. Um, Um, Quickly, remember how important it is to be on guard. Modern scholarship has done everything it can to do away with miracles, to rationalize the Bible, to treat it reductively. Um, And um, it's left a lot of people in the church, in the whole Christian church, on two sides of a divide again, but um, largely to take away the paradox that we're talking about right now. Um, It it will explain away the miracles. It will take away something divine. It will tend to make Jesus only human. When the whole trouble is we've got to keep his humanity and his divinity together at the same time. So it's important to be careful about what we read. The the scholarship, um, particularly in circles of higher learning, do a lot to rationalize the Bible away. Um, We talked a little bit about this last time. I just want to leave you with these questions. Um, How is John different from Matthew and the other Synoptic Gospels? We talked a little bit about that last week. I'm going to go to it again because to me it's extraordinary. But how are they different? We've already said tonight that um, you can't read Matthew and not encounter parables in practically every chapter. Um, um, you find them not I mean I can only think of one parable, an allusion, a couple in it in John where Christ is referring to himself as the good shepherd and he describes him leading his sheep and the thief or the stranger coming along and stealing or trying to kill them it's a warning I think largely against the Pharisees because once again we see the Pharisees giving these false teachings and accusing Christ of bad things They're so negative all they can see is bad. They want to make Christ bad. Um, That's how dark that's how dark the the mind can get. Um, uh, We talked about the outline, the opening prologue of John and then um, in the body of the text it, it seems to me two of the most important things that we have to keep in mind are these. John does not talk in terms of miracles, he talks in terms of signs. Um, The major ones are, he turns the water into wine in chapter 2. He heals the official's son in chapter 4. He heals the blind man um, in chapter 5. He feeds the 5,000 in chapter 6. He walks on water in chapter 6. He heals the blind man, chapter 9, and he raises Lazarus from the dead in chapter 11. So repeatedly he performs these miracles, and it's interesting that John uses the word signs because you know that the people are constantly looking for signs. Even in this gospel, the reason they f- they flock to Jesus is because he performs all these signs. That's a biblical term. Um the prophets would have used, that there are signs of God working in the world. So it was a way people had of acknowledging that the Father, Yahweh, was at work in the world. Except in this case, it's not Yahweh, it's his son with Yahweh with him. I want to put it that way because that's one of the major points I want to um, leave us with tonight. But there are those signs that that. Um, that represent a common thread tying all of John together. The other thing that he does is that John constantly gives us these patches of Christ in which Christ is describing himself in terms of I am. I am this, I am that. He's the bread of life in 6. He's the light of the world in 8. He's the um, gatekeeper, the shepherd in 10. He's the resurrection of life in 11. He's the way, the truth, and the life. In 14, he's the real vine. He keeps talking about himself in terms of analogies. Um, he's not speaking parables, but he's, he's defining himself. Again, um, like the parables, this is so crucial. So that we understand. He's trying to help us grasp what we can of him and his divinity and the kingdom. Now, here's the two, the two major points as I see them for John. I mean, we can, we can identify the, the thread tying the chapters together, but it seems to me there are two things that are essential f- for distinguishing John from the Synoptic Gospels. The one, and he makes it clear, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try to reinforce it by going through some passages tonight, John makes it absolutely clear in the beginning in the prologue where he says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him. Without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life. He's the light. He's the life. Hold on to that. No synoptic gospel writer does anything close to that. Not anything. What John does is bring a metaphysical order. He brings the the heavenly kingdom down into earth and makes it clear. Christ does that in all of his passages. We're going to look at them tonight. John never lets us forget that a metaphysical, a divine order, is at work. The Father is present behind everything that Christ is doing while he's here on earth. So we're never allowed to separate them. Never! they're collapsed, they're fused. Now here's the interesting thing, and this is one of the things I want to leave everybody with. If you read the synoptic gospels, it's like getting a report from a reporter. It's an about, put quotations around that, it's an about mode. He did this, he did this, he did this, he did this. You know, he described this parable, he did this, he healed this man. It's an about way. We're watching Christ do things. In John, it's not, I'm putting this in quotes, it's not an about mode, it's an in, is mode. God is with us, speaking directly to us. Christ makes that clear over and over again. There's almost not a section in which he doesn't express what he does in terms of the Father. It's an is mode. God is present, speaking directly to us. The one reason the Jews don't want to allow that is because if they allow it, they're saying that some human being is God. And they don't want to do that. They don't want to allow I mean, that's the extraordinary thing. Christ is fully human. He's fully human. They want to take that away because a God wouldn't do thing. He would appear in I don't, some glorious, some you know, inexplicable, inscrutable way, something. But instead, they've got this ordinary man he's a son, he grew up with Joseph and Mary. He's doing all these things, and he's a man. Um, so in John, we're not getting a report about I mean, we are partly. But what John is doing is very different. And if I could describe it this way. What John does is, is a little bit like what a poet does. And I hope you hear me. Mark, don't laugh at this. Um, he's, doing, he, he's doing what a great metaphysician and a poet would do, both. And if you know from our readings, you know that most poets have something metaphysical about them or they wouldn't be great. He keeps describing exchanges between Christ and Christ and somebody, the blind man or the woman or the Pharisees. There's always a scene. It's not it's not a relentless sequence of Christ doing miracles or teaching. It's a scene in which Christ is engaging and very often a whole chapter is devoted to a scene. We've only got a number of figures in John. In Matthew you almost can't count the people because Christ is at work everywhere. He's focusing these scenes, and in each one of them, something somebody says provokes a response, and in his response, he lets them know he is. I am before I am. I was there before I followed Abraham. When I am the I am. He keeps explaining himself, Presenting God before us, and it's that that outrages the Pharisees, that make them furious, and and actually go so far to say he's got it, he's possessed by a demon. So what John gives us is very very different. There are these little dramatic scenes, these scenes of a drama unfolding in which the central figure is making it clear that he is God with us now. So. In Matthew it's Christ talking about the Father or about the kingdom. In John God is here speaking directly to us. It's a pretty amazing thing, okay? So one is a whole de- a whole metaphysical dimension has been brought down and assimilated into what goes on. It's a part of our world. It's ongoing, it's working. If the people had a reason for faith, it would be then, because God is doing all these miracles. That's one. And two, all of those exchanges give Christ an opportunity to reveal himself, to show that what he's doing is with the Father, that that metaphysical condition is present, active, and alive. That's why he can do what he does. So let me... Let me just go through some of the passages. And, um, so, I'm just, I'm going to do a little bit of reading for a while and then stop and take some comments, but I, I want to try to um, get some of this out so that it's concrete for us. Chapter 8 um, deals with... Uh, the woman brought to Jesus, um, the the woman who was caught in adultery. Remember, he says, "Whoever's without sin, cast the stone." Nobody does. They leave one by one. The woman is left with Christ alone, and and he asks and says, um, "Where are they?" "Has no one condemned you?" She says, "No one, Lord." And he says, "Neither do I. Go and do not sin again." I I want to give emphasis to that because. Um, you know, the the tendency of priests is to see that this is all mercy and that's it. Christ's mercy is extraordinary. It goes way beyond what the judges do. The judges are hard-hearted or they wouldn't be there. Something happens to make them leave. I mean, we hope they have a change of heart. But his response to the woman is, I don't condemn you either. Go and sin no more. He puts her back under the law. He's not going to condemn her. But he, does, he doesn't dismiss the law again. Christ doesn't. Anything he does, he says to her, go back and sin no more. Then he says, speaking to the men, uh, this is eight twelve. I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. That's the line, one of the lines from which John got his opening comments. Without him was not anything made, and was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness is not overcome it. The light is present. God's radiant, I don't know what to call it, ineffable light, is effable. It's present in Christ. He who follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. I'm, I'm reading all of this. I'm hoping that that everybody will feel this strongly that all of this is a reason a reason for our having faith. Christ is... (laughs) What more could a God do to strengthen the faith he wants his people to have? The Pharisees blame him again and he says, because they say you're bearing witness to yourself, Jesus says even if I do bear witness to myself my testimony is true For I know whence I've come and whither I'm going, but you don't know. They should know this. They don't. You judge according to the flesh. I judge no one. Yet even if I do judge, my judgment is true, for it is not I alone that judge, but I and he who sent me. In your law, he he keeps alive his Father's law. In your law is written that the testimony of two men is true. I bear witness to myself and the Father sent me bears witness to me. They say, where's your father? Um, you know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. These words he spoke in the treasuries he taught in the temple, but no one arrested him. Um, he goes on. He says, I go away. They want to know where. He says, where I'm going, you cannot come. This is about 822. You are from below, I am from above. You are of this world, I am not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sins, for you will die in your sins unless you believe that I am he. They say, who are you? He keeps telling them. He who sent me is true, and I declare to the world what I have heard from him. They did not understand that he spoke to them of the Father. So Jesus said, When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he, and that I do nothing on my own authority, but speak thus as the Father taught me. He who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do what is pleasing to him. What John makes clear in every single chapter is that we cannot understand anything he does apart from the Father. That kingdom is with him. He is God. He's absolutely human. He is absolutely God. And the, and the Pharisees will not see that. They answered him, because he's talking about the father constantly. Abraham's our father, Jesus says. If you were Abraham's children, you would do what Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who's told you the truth which I heard from God this is not what Abraham did. You do what your father did. They said to him, we were not born of fornication. We have one father, even God. Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me. For I proceeded and came from, there's the procession of the Trinity. I mean, there's an open line to the procession of the Trinity. For I proceeded and came forth from God. I came out I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you understand? Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. Fred, I wonder if I mean this is partly an answer to your question, you know. They're not going to hear it. And moreover, what we see is where, even where they do hear it, they, they turn it to evil. This is the hard heart that Isaiah talks about. It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father the devil, and your will is to do your father's desire. He was a murderer from the beginning. It has nothing to do with the truth, because there is no truth in him. Christ is all God, all human. It's just crucial that he keeps trying to make clear that the person before them is God. And the irony is, he's speaking directly to us. We don't get these explanations in Matthew. The Jews go on, keep arguing. I'm. Um, are we not right in saying you are a Samaritan, have a demon? I have not a demon, but I honor my father. He, he goes on again. If anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham who died and the prophets died? Who do you claim to be? Jesus said, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my father who glorifies me, of whom you say that he is your God. But you have not known him. I know him. God, there's such an indictment here running through this. Their whole life is spent full of convictions that they love God. They're bitterly evil. They can't do anything that isn't negative. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he was to see my day. He saw it and was glad. The Jews then said to him, You are not yet 50 years old. God, this is... <laughs> And you've seen Abraham," Jesus said to them, "Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am." Um, let me let me go through with nine because it, it's it's a little bit simpler. You know that in nine he cures the man who is blind from birth. He heals him, and the Pharisees hear about it and call the man to him, and. The man tells them that Christ healed them and they're reluctant to hear him. It's beyond their comprehension. They do not want to be open to anything they don't understand. Even though there's a lot there. They refuse. And the man says that only God could have done what he did. And and their response to him is, If this man, or he says, if the man were not from God, he could do nothing. They'd answer, you were born in utter sin and and you would teach us? All you hear is spite and pride. They will not allow the truth of what's right in front of them. Um, Jesus heard what happened. He seeks the man out and he asks if he believes in him. And the man says, yes. Um, And then Christ says this. For judgment I came into the world, that those who do not see may see, and and that those who may see may become blind. Let, let me stop. Just Is that clear? What What is he saying there? Because it goes to Fred's question, I think. For judgment I came into this world, that those who do not see may see, and those who do not see may, may see, and that those who see may become blind. That sounds spiteful again. In fact he's here let me let me finish to make it clear it seems, this this seems to deal with what seems to be a spite on God's part on Christ's part so and I think it goes to your question Fred so Jesus asks if the man the blind man who's been cured believes in him and he says he does and he wants to worship him he says lord i believe Jesus said for judgment i came into this world that those who do not see may see, and that those who see may become blind. Some of the Pharisees were um, nearby to hear that, and they say, Are we also blind? This is the very end of 9. Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say we see, your guilt remains. So all of this turns on how how much they understand or see. What's he saying? For judgment I came into the world that those who do not see may see and that those who see may become blind. That sounds spiteful. They say are we blind? And Jesus says if you were blind you would have no guilt. But now that you say we see, your guilt remains. Mark, this is as strong as I mean this is as strong a scene of irony as um, the one we saw in Oedipus Rex when you you know you trumpet it out that you know, I remember you know that's irony. What's the irony here? Can we, is it, is it clear to everybody what the irony is here? Francis, you have a thought? Of, what's the irony?
6: I was kind of, while you were following, Uh, I think you have to be humble and childlike to see Christ. If you think you're wise and understanding, you don't see Him.
0: Yeah, you're blind. A
6: wise man that thinks he knows everything and knows all can't see, where if you're childlike and, and humble, you do.
0: Yeah. Is everybody okay? Which means the guilt, the sin in the Pharisees remains. They think they see they're condemning on the basis of that. that, um, And so when they say, are we guilty? I mean, the the fact that he says your guilt remains is going to make them even more angry at him. They're not going to like what he says. They're going to hate him even more. Is that clear? Is everybody okay on that here's what's interesting so just after dealing I mean this this I think goes so directly to Marx earlier you know when he said it goes to the Pharisees um, that that line here in this context it's it's linked up he just has these words to the Pharisees and he says that your guilt remains because you think You think you see, when in fact you don't. And Mark, I mean, uh, Fred. It seems to me this is just another reinforcement of, I think, of what I was saying earlier that it it makes clear how evil the Pharisees are, how blind they are, and the danger of giving things to them. Because if you did, if Christ did, imagine what they would do with it. I mean, we're dealing with the depth of evil right now. That's that's pretty great, I think. I, I just think it's, we don't grasp this unless we see God is before these men. He's right in front of them, physically before them as a human being. And all they see is something bad. They're making him evil. That's that's how great the evil can be. Um and these uh-huh. are the, Wait, wait, just these, these are the these are the religious leaders
5: of the day. Go
0: ahead, Mark. Go ahead.
5: You're you're right about the Pharisees. I'm not disagreeing your point. But I'm sure everybody here has probably met some nut job who thinks they're God or Jesus in our time. So if you take every one of these passages in John, take out take out the miracles that are that are worked. Let's just take that out for a second. And somebody walked up to you tomorrow and said those, you'd think he's nuts. And you'd be right. Okay? The Pharisees have the power problem. That's a whole different issue. So I can't fault people for not believing based on what Christ says. Now, when he put he put that together with the miracles and what he does, okay, a whole different story. But just based on, if you take any one of these things, if I walked up to you tomorrow and said the exact same quote, you'd think I was nuts. So I can't blame a lot of them for thinking he was nuts. Now, when you see the miracles, do this stuff. No, that's a different story. But just throwing that out there. <laughs>
0: oh God, Mark. Um, yeah, but I, I want to, I want to try to move ahead. But it seems to me to, I mean, the point you're making is a valid one. I mean, people are insane. I, I, one of the reasons I love Chesterton is that, you know, in the opening chapters, um, the maniac and. Those that the accusation he's making is that most of the rational people in the world, in in the chairs and the universities, are half insane, um, and they're not claiming to be God. I mean, that's a subtle remark. But, but part of the point here, I think, and we miss it if we if we don't allow for it, um, the evil is great, and it shouldn't be explained away. It th- these are these are men condemning God. Everything that's being said. On their part comes in the context of Christ having performed miracles. He wouldn't be having these discussions if he didn't. Um, The woman in adultery, the blind man. He'll go on and on. I mean, if we take the first eight chapters, we talked about um, some of the miracles he performed. Um, So, in almost every chapter, we're we're witnessing Christ perform a miracle. People are gathering around him. Um, The it, to to take out the miracles is to simply undo the the Bible. Okay, but wait, wait, lady, Mark, Mark, God. Mark, stop. no, Mark, no Mark, Mark, Mark stop, Mark. I'm gonna stop, stop. Um, um, I heard you. I'm. Um, if you take out the miracles, the the whole point of it is um, taken away, because what we're seeing is that these miracles are being performed, and these people, lots, the ordinary people are flocking to him, they're thirsty, they want more of it, it's the educated people who are coming who are making these accusations in the face of them. So, um, to take away the miracles is to take away the whole point of what's going on. One of the points of what's going on is that that's how deep evil can be in human beings. If we're not seeing that these men are calling God a, a, um, a blasphemer, and saying that he's a Samaritan and possessed by a demon. We're, we're just missing how great evil can become in human beings. I mean, Mark, go ahead. You had something to say.
5: I was talking about just the things being said, because yes. in the in the example of the lady about to get stoned for adultery, there was no miracle performed there. He just walked up and said, Hey, those without sin cast the first stone. Now he's smart and he was right. There was no miracle there. You're right about the Pharisees and the miracles. You can't separate them, but just take for what he said, and we believe it as nothing with the miracles, but I can see there's a lot of people who think, maybe not. That's all.
0: Where's it going? Oh, to to follow. um, Fred and Francis, uh, uh, we lost your picture. I hope we're not losing you. The interesting thing about chapter 10 is that um, just after he performs the miracle on this blind man and the Pharisees refuse to acknowledge it and, um, and um, argue with Jesus really wanting him to admit that they're the ones who know when he seems to be accusing them of being blind and he says, Now that you say we see, your guilt remains. Immediately after that, after this exchange with the Pharisees, he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door but climbs in by another view, that man is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the gatekeeper opens. He goes on. This is one of the more parabolic. It's, a, it's in the nature of a parable. He's liking himself to a, um, the gatekeeper and the, and the shepherd. Go down. He says, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came. Now hold on to that because we've just witnessed, we've just experienced a scene in which Christ is dealing with the Pharisees. Um, um, he's cured the blind man. The Pharisees have refused to accept the miracle. They want to do everything they can. They they are threatening with the man's parents. They, they try to skirt around them because they're... This is interesting. I mean, it's a sign of the weakness of humans. They're, they're afraid to admit what happens because they're worried that they'll get removed from the temple. So they send the Pharisees back to talk with their son again. After this drama involving this man and the Pharisees not wanting to admit their blindness, Christ gives this parable of himself as the, um, as the gatekeeper, the shepherd. And he says this, this is um, 10 um, 11 or so, chapter 10, verse 11. I am the good shepherd, the good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. He who is a hireling and not a shepherd, whose, whose own sheep are not sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it in abundance. Go down I'm the good shepherd, I know I'm own, and my own know me, as the Father knows me, and I know the Father. I lay down my life for the sheep, and I have other sheep that are not of this fold, and I must bring them also, and they will heed my voice. There's, so there shall be one flock, one shepherd. For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life, that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have the power to lay it down, and I have the power to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. Let me stop again. Um, what do you make of the fact that this follows the the episode that we just experienced with the Pharisees, and what's he saying about him as the as the shepherd? He's going to. Um, He's in the next few lines when he's facing the Pharisees and they're accusing him of his blasphemy, trying to make himself God. Um, he, he says, um, you're blaspheming, you're saying I'm the Son of God. Um, Christ says, if I'm not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe... So he's saying... The works that he does, I mean, you can even make a case for saying that what he's doing with the woman in adultery is the work of his father. It's an act of forgiveness which the judges, the, people, the Jewish people under the law, would not understand. Everything this man does is beyond them. You could say that's part of his work. Um, even if it's not a miracle, in some sense it partakes of the miraculous. He's showing an act of forgiveness that they, they can't begin to comprehend. Um if I am not doing the works of my father then do not believe me but if I do them even though they do not even though you do not believe me believe the works that you may know and understand that the father is in me and I in the father again they tried to arrest him he goes away But let me stop for a minute here Why why is if I can put it this way I'm not sure how to ask the question why is this parable why is why is this moment when he likens himself to a shepherd appropriate at this moment? And what is he saying about himself as a shepherd um, that relates him both to his father and to the Jewish people? Because remember, in all of this, he's he constantly is dealing with people who are the most religious people of the time, the priests, the Pharisees, the scribes, um, this is why Maritan has, has made the point that the, the veil has fallen over Christianity, but so many people in Christianity do, aren't, may live Christ in their heads like the Jews did the Father, and not live and not live as Christ asked us to live. What's the importance of this shepherd metaphor at this point in John? I can ask that. Tracy, what do you make of this? Pat, you have a thought? Thought. That's good.
6: Unfortunately, no. (laughs) I'm just listening to your comments trying
0: to absorb those. Karen, it seems to me there's an appropriateness, a fittingness that this takes place just after the scene with the Pharisees.
3: Well, it seems like he's having to defend the faith and when he talks about being the good shepherd and those... um, Threatening his sheep, he's referring to the Pharisees,
0: yeah. among others. Yeah, yeah. Fred, any any thoughts here?
1: Just, just, just one. Uh, it seems to me, going back to some of our earlier discussions, it seems to me that part of the Pharisees' problem is they as we've described before, they're in their head, they think they they know all the answers. And once you get to that point, it's hard for you to accept another point of view, if you will. And it it sounds to me like he's almost trying to help them by using reason to enlighten them and allow them to see what they are otherwise blind to. You know, for example, the statement says, if you don't believe me, believe the works. <laughs> right, right. right? I right, mean right. you're you holy men. So you know, if you if you if you can't hear what I'm trying to tell you, see what see what I'm doing. And if they are good works, then how can I be bad? Yeah. So I, I, I get the sense that he's trying to Get them to use the reason that's that's the roadblock for them in a different way, so that they can see what he's trying to what he's trying to tell them.
0: Yeah. Anybody, Mark? Do you have a thought on this? What's going on?
5: No, no. Everybody's saying just not.
0: <laughs> let Sorry. us be. Let it. <laughs> Suzanne. Let us be grateful for moments of silence. <laughs> oh, Mark, God, <laughs> we have got to have a meal. Um, you guys are much nicer than I am. You got here. Let me let me put a, a little bit darker spin on this because, um, be pray for me, patient. Be pa- I think he's doing all that you guys have said. Not not a question. And and I, um, Fred, I thought you put in a really generous turn on it. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and a robber. And he says below, if you go down, the thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. I came, I think partly what he's doing is teaching his disciples and everybody else, beware of wolves in sheep's clothing. There are lots of people who are going to pretend to be the sheepherders, and they're all going to miss. They're going to come and destroy the flock. So once again, he's warning them off against an evil. But he's doing it, I think, in a contrast because he's just been dealing with men who seem to be the shepherds. These got went, I mean, there's no other way. These men, the, the Jewish leaders, are the shepherds of their people. That's an Old Testament, the, a pastoral image, going back to Old Testament times. The shepherd watching over his flock. These are the shepherds. And they're destroying people. And Christ has come in to recover. It's, it's just amazing to me to recover a sense of the Father whom these people say they love. And, and clearly lots of them do. They wouldn't go to Christ if they didn't. What's interesting about the Pharisees is and, 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 the, and the way they are in contrast with so many of the other Jewish people is the Jewish people love Christ. They love the Father. They want him. Christ is doing everything he can to make the two of them visible. He's God, the Father is with him, and they're finding nothing but evil. But it just seems to me the 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 timing of this parable, this treatment of himself, is important because it sits next against what he's just been doing. We've we watched him engage the Pharisees when they're trying to take everything that he's done and make it evil. And the fact that he I thought your giving emphasis to those words, Fred, was really fine. If you don't believe me, at least believe my works. Look at the Beatitudes on the mountain. Look at the mercy shown the woman in adultery. He's doing lots of things that the religious leaders of the time cannot do. What does he mean when he says the false shepherd... He who is a hireling and not a shepherd, whose own the sheep are not, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. The wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he's a hireling and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me, as the Father knows me and I know the Father. I lay down my life. I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also and there they will heed my voice." What's he saying there? Who's he referring to? Well,
3: maybe it's the Gentiles.
0: I'm sorry, Karen, I'm sorry, say again.
3: So you're asking who he's referring to when he talks about the other sheep? Yeah. Uh, seems like it's the Gentiles.
0: Okay, okay then who are the sheep?
3: Jews. The Jews?
0: Yeah. Is everybody okay? I mean, once again, it's an interesting passage where he's reinforcing what we've seen before. that He came for his father's people. For the sheep. And it's interesting that he uses the word hireling. (sighs) Ah. He who is a hireling and not a shepherd, whose own the sheep are not, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf snatches them. Who's he referring to there? The Pharisees. Mm-hmm. Flesh that out, can you, Fred? I'm not sure that that's obvious, so. I, I, well, I, I think it's the
1: Pharisees and the Sadducees, actually. I mean, they're being hired. I mean, the, you know, that's the money that goes to the church. That keeps these guys rich, you know. Plus the stuff they're getting under the table from the Romans, I guess, too. But um, you know, it is their responsibility to be shepherds, and yet they're not being good shepherds. They're being bad shepherds. Yeah. And yeah. I think I think it's true that in in that case, he's and and if you look at that that whole two week period before the the Passion he is all over the pharisees and the sadducees i mean literally every passage that you read he is he is doing a number on one or the other or a group of them yeah. i really think at that point he's pretty much given up on those guys and he's he's using them as an example to the people of the of what they should not do or should not be constantly
0: yeah and be on guard against. i think in yeah. terms
1: of you know who the who the the sheep are, the ones that he he has yet to gather. I, I I personally believe that's that's bigger than the Gentiles. I I think that's the people that he ultimately sends all the disciples out to reach, the people who have not yet had a chance to hear the the word. But you know he will reach out to them, if not him personally through the through the apostles, but. Yeah, just i my, my take on it.
0: Yeah, Fred, I just a clear, just a point of clarification. The, the, um, does not the Gentile world for you mean everybody but the Jews? It sounded you like know, you were making it, a it, distinction. It I'm it not can, sure.
1: But I mean, there are, you know, the Gentiles to me are are more the Greeks and that general area. I mean, ultimately. The, the apostles go to Asia, parts of Asia. Yeah. You know you know, places well beyond the Mediterranean, if you will. So yeah. I guess to me it's just a broader group than what we typically think of when we talk
0: Gentiles. Yeah.
1: But that that's just me.
0: Yeah. When I think about Gentiles, I think about everybody outside the chosen people, you know, every the and it's interesting because there are so many signs, there's indications in the Old Testament that ultimately God had a, a greater, more universal purpose for the chosen people, that they were to go out to the whole world. It didn't happen that way. but um, In 11, um, Christ raises Lazarus. Um, um, when uh, Martha approaches him, she implores him to... Save his brother, he asks her whether she believes in the resurrection, and she does. Um, um, this is one of the, I think, only two times that I can recall Christ weeping in um, 11 30 or so. Where have you laid him? He says, they, uh, they said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, See how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he have opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man from dying? and it's interesting that I mean one of the takes on this is that because he does it in in another place he allows a man to die um, to show the glory of him and his father that he allows these things because it's one of the reasons he came to show that to show how much God loved his people that he was willing to do all. um, Christ is not a grumble. He doesn't complain. Um, He's pretty tough-minded in arguments, but his heart... I mean, don't forget that passage with the Canaanite woman. I think that's what the violent beard away means. He cannot, will not resist love um, this great need in people if they're open to it. So many people aren't, but... um, He weeps and then asks them to take away the stone... Did I not tell you if you would believe, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone, and Jesus lifted up his eyes, and he said, it's a prayer to the Father now, Father, I thank thee that thou hast heard me. I knew that thou hearest me always, but I have said this on account of the people standing by, that they may believe that you did send me. When he had said this, um, he cried with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And he comes out, um and more, more Jews believe because once again they've seen these signs that he does these amazing things. Um, What follows um, are the Jews who are getting um, more and more defensive, uh, more and more violent. Caiaphas makes the, who is the the high priest this year, Um, Caiaphas um, warns the people that um, if they don't do something to quiet Jesus, the Romans may come in, and conquer them, and take away the temple. And he makes the argument that it's better for one man to die than for the Jews, for a nation to die, or or for the Jews to lose their temple. That's an extraordinary gambit. He's appealing to the racial sense of the people. It's better that one man should die rather than a whole people and and their religious temple go. So he's actually even using religion to justify killing God, killing Christ. The Passover is coming. It gets close. Um, There's a feast day, and um, Christ and Mary and Martha and and Lazarus have a meal It's at this point where Judas will betray him. This is um, chapter 12, about line 4 or so. Um... Judas asks um, why Christ didn't take the the oil that Mary used and sell it and take the money and give it to the poor and he said Let her be; the poor are always here. Um, um, the Greeks are appearing, here's this Gentile, this larger world outside the Greeks, it's the Romans and Greeks because remember at this time the Hellenic world was had enveloped the Mediterranean It defined the Greek inheritance was so extraordinary. Fred, there's a yellow around your window. Did you have something to say? I, it's just Go.
1: an observation. Um, uh, the scene of Lazarus is I, I think probably considered one of the greatest miracles that that Christ did. And it's you know it's clearly the thing that triggered you know the ultimate passion and it was clearly it was clearly Christ you know sending a message to everyone around because supposedly there were a large number of people who who witnessed this scene and he called and he called out to God even though he obviously didn't need to to, to make this happen but i think he he did it because he was in the presence of so many people and wanted to reinforce the fact yeah. that he and he and the father you know were connected and it's interesting that only this only appears in the book of John in none of the other Gospels
0: do you have a thought about that
1: I, I it's, it's yeah. just you know I, I guess it's I guess it's in essence one of the reasons why I've always preferred John over any of the other Gospels because you know I I got the sense that we're hearing it from the man who was there as opposed to I'm not really sure who the other three guys were. Yeah, 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 yeah. And, and I, I don't know if, I but you know you would think that with as many people who probably talked about this event why it wouldn't show up in one of the other synoptics is has always been a mystery to
0: me. Wait, I, I see, and I I don't even know, but and um, but let me ask here. Um, because if anybody had asked me, I would have said um, the raising of Lazarus is, um, is something too important not to appear. Is there no mention of it, at? I don't know that? Is there no mention of the raising of Lazarus in the other Gospels?
1: No, there's not.
0: Wow, wow, I've got to check that out. That's a Hard to believe, because in some ways this is like um, this is going beyond what what Abraham did with Isaac, you know, as a foreshadowing of the resurrection or the Father giving His Son. This, to me, is a clear foreshadowing of the resurrection. If He could raise Lazarus, yeah. I then no, that's, I, I'm
1: pretty sure that's correct because that's why, if you if you notice that when we're when it's the year of one of the others synaptic Gospels, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. when we're doing that part, it's always a John, reading from
0: John. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, Just FYI. <laughs> <laughs> it's more than that, but um, in 1227, with all the people gathering and Christ approaching the last week, he has this line, now is my soul troubled? And what shall I say? I mean, here again, there's something so human about Christ in this moment. Father, save me from this hour. No, for this purpose, I've come to this hour. Father, glorify the name that a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it and will glorify it again. The crowd standing by heard it. By by the way, this is a really interesting... um, The crowd standing by and heard it and said it had thundered. Others said an angel has spoken to the Jesus. So, um an interesting aside Hawthorne uses this technique it's called multiple options John does this a number of times something will happen and he'll give a response and show that there were multiple responses the crowd standing by heard it and said that it had thundered others said an angel different people see it differently you know it's it, in a sense it alludes to the four gospels each of the four gospels some people will say that's why we can't believe any of them but that's not a reason for disbelieving. It's a reason for crediting something real happened. John's giving us the word. I mean, he's showing Christ, even if people misunderstand it or don't quite get it. Um, um, once again,. Um, Um, Christ is taking on the Pharisees. Um, He calls himself the light of the world, and um, the Pharisees are upset. And there's this quote from Isaiah. It was said that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed our report, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore they could not believe, for Isaiah said again, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart. Sounds like God is doing something to them. It's really a metaphorical way of describing the hardness of heart that refuses to hear God. Lest they should see with their eyes and perceive with their hearts and turn for me to heal them. Isaiah said this because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Nevertheless, many, even of the authorities, believed in him. But for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it, lest they should be put out of the synagogue, for they loved the praise of men more than the praise of God. How many people cave give in to the world because they're afraid of losing their jobs, their country, family. Um, Jesus cries out and says, he who believes in me believes not in me but in him who sent me. We can't see him doing anything here without understanding the Father is absolutely with me. Go down a few lines for I have not spoken on my own authority the Father who sent me has himself given me commandments, commandment what to say and what to speak. And I know that his commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has bidden me. Um, in the next scene, we have the washing of the feet. And again, um, Jesus referring to the role of his Father in all of it. Peter says he's not going to do it. And then Christ says, then you'll have nothing to do with me. Um, about thirteen, sixteen. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is he who sent greater than he who sent him. <laughs> if you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. I am not speaking of you all. I know whom I have chosen. It is that the scripture may be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. I tell you this now before it takes place, then when it does take place, you may believe that I am he, I am. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who receives anyone whom I send receives me. Go down a few lines. Um, Judas goes out, um, and Christ knows that he's going to betray him, and after he leaves, Christ says, now is the Son of Man glorified, and in him God is glorified. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Little children, yet a little while, I'm with you. He's encouraging us to be with him, follow him, whatever happens. He tells them that he's going to go and prepare a place for them, and then this is um, chapter 14, about line 6 or 7. He um, says, you don't know where I'm going, but I'm going to prepare a place for you. Thomas asks him, where? And then Jesus replies, um, this is about 14.5 or so, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father. Also henceforth you know him. Um, remember that he did nothing to, ab- to undermine the law of the Father. Um, it's... Um, the law is solid with Christ. He's obedient to it. What he does is bring a divine love into a human form and asks us to follow it, to trust that if we die, if we give up our lives for him, whatever's going on, we will be with him. Um, Philip says, show, <laughs> show us the Father and we should be satisfied. God, after all this, Philip says, show us the Father. We've Christ says, have I been with you so long and yet you do not know me, Philip? He who has seen me. How many times has this been said? Um, he who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Whatever he did, made the Father present whatever he did, miracle or not, believe me that I am in the Father and the Father in me, or else believe me for the sake of the works themselves. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes in me will also do the works that I do. The greater works these will he do because I go with the Father. Um, he tries to encourage them because he knows he's, he's, they're going to they're feel abandoned. In what's about to happen. I will not leave you desolate. I will come to you yet a little while and the world will see me no more. But you will see me because I, um, I live you will live also. In that day you will know that I am in my Father and you in me and I in, ye, in you. He who has my commandments and keeps them he it is who loves me. Um. Go down a few lines. These things I've spoken to you while I'm still with you. But the counselor, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. He'll go on. I mean, it just seems to me one of the things we have to take away from John is that over and over and over in these scenes, like little drama settings, Christ is exp- in. In whatever is presented before him, whatever the situation is, whether it's the woman in adultery, the crowds on the hill, the disciples or the crowds around him, he is always stepping forward to say, I am. That, you know, the lovely line where, he, um, um, where he's relating himself to Abraham. And he says, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. He is the eternal living God. Yahweh named himself. Yahweh said, I am that am. He is uncreated being. There was nothing outside of him. Creation came because he made it. God is all being. Christ is the same. Before Abraham was, I am. These things I've spoken while well, I'm still with you, but the Counselor, the Father, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give you, not as the world gives it, but I. Let your hearts. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. You heard me say to you, I go away and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced because I go to the Father, for the Father is greater than I And now I have told you before it takes place, so that when it takes place, you may believe. He's saying, rejoice. Be glad. Um, In everything he did, he made the Father and his kingdom present. And he's reassuring the disciples that when he leaves, the Holy Spirit will come and do the same. We are not to be dispirited. We are not to grumble and we are to um, take a stand with Christ always, um, but in the way that he asked. And we do that in, with the faith and the belief that the Holy Spirit is continuing to do the work of Christ. You can say at one point, I mean I think in, in with good sense, the Spirit is the Spirit of Christ. The Father sends him, Christ sends him, he's going to continue the work of Christ in the world. So the upshot of all of this for me, let me just leave this and then, you know, leave time for any comments or whatever, whatever you want to do. One of the reasons that John is so amazing is that he makes clear that this supernatural dimension, this metaphysical dimension, the kingdom of the Father, the Father himself, is never not present with Christ, always. God is present. Um, what was shocking to the Pharisees, what made it impossible for them to believe is that he was a human. So the great paradox that we're left with with Christ is that he's fully human, absolutely fully human. we do anything to derogate that, anything to take it away and we take away from the greatness of what he did. And he's fully divine. Um, Christ does an awful lot to help us see that to enter into it fully. Or the church the church could have never defended itself against the heresies. They used reason to argue because they had Christ in front of them. Because other people were using reason to make him something different. They used it to make clear this is what Christ is. This is the person. Fully human, fully divine. Because all around them, people are trying to take away one or the other. Because I, I hope that's clear. It's so much easier to to take Christ as being one or the other. That's why the Sabellian heresy, or the Arian heresy, or the deceit heresies, all of them, because it just did not make sense to them to say that this man was fully human and fully divine. It would have made more sense to say he's human. Or he's the father, or he's an illusion. Because to hold those two things together means we hold a, a contradiction, what is seems to be a contradiction, a fullness that's difficult for our minds to um, to comprehend. But the church did that. It showed a, an amazing resourcefulness and a use of reason that that they got from Christ himself or they could never have defended the orthodoxy of the church against the heresies that were swarming around the church. Um, and continue to swarm today. And... Okay, let me stop. Any any comments or questions or anything you want to offer on? We'll finish John next week. Um, I'll write you a note, but we'll we'll plan to finish John next week. I think the the most important things have been said. I mean, what we're going to read is what we're going to, what we've read in all the gospels. Christ is going to go to his end. Um, we'll. I mean, let me put this question. Since all the Gospels deal with Christ's end, you know, his entrance into Jerusalem and the scourging and the crucifixion and the resurrection, what does John do with those last days um, that makes his account different from Matthew, Mark, and Luke? How is John's account of the last days different from the Synoptic Gospels? Be a good question to give some thought to before next week. But any comments or um, observations or questions or <laughs> I don't know about you guys, but I'm amazed. I mean, I I. I've read the Gospels a lot in my life but I've never concentrated on it. I, I I have to work harder to try to do you know to do what I can for these classes and so I haven't read John in a long time and reading him now I was just blown away. Just blown away. I've read John before and not seen what I s- come to see this time. What he does with the Father and what John is doing with you know this in the beginning was the word, and it's an amazing, it's an amazing light. I mean, it goes to Fred's question too. You know, why did some people see it and why other? How could John have seen this? There, there's a whole. My own suspicion is that it was a part of the Hellenic world and he, it helped shape his mind, because what he did, what he does, is just amazing, just truly amazing. It's so different from the Synoptics. No, I can't. Karen, you're eager to go take a swim. What's? Pat, you don't have anything. I can't believe. Come on, you guys. We've got three minutes. I I can't let you guys go early, even though I owe you hours. Pat, what's your response to John so far? Is this? I mean, how are you? Well,
6: someone who didn't grow up reading a lot about the Bible, so this is all sort of a different perspective for me. So I just enjoy hearing other comments about it because, like I said, I never grew up reading it. And it was, uh, so it's interesting to hear someone else have a different take on it.
0: Yeah, good. Good and glad. Yeah, Yeah, I appreciate that. By the way, I'm really sorry. And it's just, God bless it. I'm really sorry. If everybody in your prayers tonight could include Barbara, I'm I'm sorry I forgot it because it was on my mind. I knew there was something. Barbara's doing well, um, yeah. but she's been sick, um, and um, we um, um, doc um, texted her last night, and we got a really good text back. She's doing well. She sounds she sounds good. She's in good spirits, um, but I know she's recovering. So um, just keep her in your prayers. Yep. Yeah. Tracy, nothing, no comments from you? Okay. Um, Let's be glad we're all safe in this winter. It it makes it possible to enjoy winter a little bit better than we did last year. But um, you guys stay safe. Um, Have a good week. And um, we'll we'll finish John next week. Okay? Thank you. Bye.
6: Thank you for all your hard work.
0: You're welcome. Thank you for being here. Thank you for being here.
6: Uh, Okay. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye, everyone. Bye.